ora. Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to other critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episodes so far. How's things for you? Can you believe we are almost coming to the end of 2020? What a crazy, crazy year it has been for us all in so many ways. I do hope that you have made it to the end of the year more or less intact. I do wish you and your whanau, family, a truly blessed holiday season, however you are celebrating. If you are working, I do hope you get the chance to rest and recover at some point. We all need that. This is episode number 22, recorded in November 2020, and today I talk with Associate Professor Kimberly Haynes. Kimberly is the Physiotherapy Research Lead and Senior Critical Care Physiotherapist at Western Health Melbourne in Australia, and holds, she also holds honorary appointments at the University of Melbourne. She has worked exclusively in intensive care for 12 years as a clinician, educator and researcher. Her research focus has been the recovery of survivors of critical illness and their families. Kimberly completed her PhD in 2016, titled Recovery After Critical Illness. Post-PhD, she leads a program of research in ICU recovery, where she mentors other clinician researchers and higher degree students. Her research interests include outcomes of ICU survivors and their caregivers, peer support, consumer engagement, early rehabilitation, predictor of outcomes, and clinical decision-making in the ICU, and the deteriorating patient. In this episode, we talk about developing a broad skill set and how important that is, giving it a go and getting a foot in the door, predicting ICU outcomes, the impact of ICU on patients and society, post-intensive care syndrome and survivorship, and the possible role of patient peer support groups. So, Grab a cuppa, or maybe something stronger at this time of the year, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Kimberly. Okay, Kimberly, thank you for joining me from Melbourne this afternoon, or late morning, your time. Um, It's just early afternoon here in Auckland. Great to have you on the podcast series. Thank you for inviting me, Rachel. So, Kimberly, you're a physiotherapist by trade. How did you get into physiotherapy? Uh, well, I knew in high school <laughs> a few years ago now, thinking that I really wanted to do something with the the human body. I thought that was something that really fascinated me. I was thinking about um, other sort of um, health professional type careers. I was interested in medicine, but then I thought the trade-off with that was was lifestyle. Um, so I opted for physiotherapy. I think that's the story you might, might, may hear others, other physiotherapists say. Um, my partner is a physiotherapist, but has since gone on to tra- retrain as, as a doctor. Um, oh. So there are, you know, it does happen. People do train as physios <laughs> and then decide to go do medicine. I have stuck with physiotherapy. Um, so I, I, yeah, that was really, I guess, where I first started thinking, oh, I want to do something in the health um, professional field. Um, so I'm originally from Auckland 
And so I trained at um, AUT um, in Auckland, and I think I graduated in uh, 2004. Um, and then I did kind of really a grad year, new grad year um, at North Shore Hospital um, and did a few uh, rotations in the acute hospital mm -hmm. there. And almost left working in public health. I didn't particularly like it at first after a few acute rotations. And I had a, a job lined up to go and do musculoskeletal um, sports physio. But I stuck it out. I had ICU coming up as a rotation. So I thought, I'll give ICU a go and see what happens. Um, and I'd been, I had been inspired by a few um, cardiorespiratory lecturers at um, university. So I thought, I'll give ICU a go. Gave it a go and then thought, oh, this is a cool environment. Really like the pace, um, really like having to think differently, really like the systems-based approach, the team-based approach. So um, that sort of kept me in public health. Um, and then I wanted to pursue really um, sort of see what else was out there in the world of intensive care. Um, and I think I was doing a little bit of postgraduate study at the time and Sue Burney and Linda Dennehy, um, both well-known, esteemed mm. um, ICU physiotherapists came and presented at a course in Auckland. And um, I got chatting to them afterwards and I said, oh, because I thought Austin Health sounds like a really <laughs> cool place to work and, and basically used all the techniques, um, all the physiotherapy ICU techniques that I'd read about, but not really had that exposure to um, mm. a, as a young physiotherapist. Um, and so I just asked them if there were any jobs going and they said, send us your CV. Um, and then I think, I don't know, six months later or so I got um, an offer to do a clinical education um, type role. It was just, I think, a six-month or 12-month contract. It was a very short contract, but I decided, oh, it's a foot in the door. Give mm. it a go. Um, so I packed up my life in Auckland in a fairly short space of time and moved to Melbourne. Um, and I have been in Melbourne. So I thought, oh, I'll just do it for a year or two, you know, live in Melbourne for a couple of years and then come back to Auckland. Um, and then, yeah, but then one thing led to another and I've ended up staying here, um, you know, now some years on. So um, I worked at Austin as a, as a grade two physiotherapist doing a clinical education type role. And then I got um, Sue and Linda at the time were running a reha ICU rehab trial. Um, mm -hmm. And so once my contract ended, I rolled into doing um, the intervention therapy for that trial um, and then also managed to pick up extra days working in ICU. And then over time became the senior ICU physiotherapist at Austin Health um, in a grade three role. And then decided to do my PhD in that time, <laughs> um, and then gradually no, got more senior. Gradually got more senior roles, so it sort of kind of snowballed. Um, so it was just one of those things of kind of, you know, putting yourself out there and then taking the opportunities that mm -hmm. that came your way. And I don't know, maybe that's just a phase of life that I was in. Do I still do that now? Maybe I hope so. But maybe maybe that's something that you do <laughs> as you're younger and you've got less, you know, maybe roots or things that you can pick up and go. You can be a bit more transient. So I, I was really fortunate that um, I had so many doors um, open to me, and I was mm -hmm. able to sort of carve out a life and carve out a career here um, because it, you know, it is competitive um, in mm -hmm. in Melbourne. It's competitive in the ICU space um, but um, yeah I've been I mean lucky to have great people around me to to support me and encourage me um, along the way. Yeah it's really interesting you saying that because you know I think it's a theme that's come through in several of these interviews is that 
putting yourself out there, but recognizing the opportunity and actually not just recognizing it, but taking the person up on it and seizing it and trying something different. Absolutely. Absolutely. How hugely important that is. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, the more senior I've become when opportunities come up now, um, I had an opportunity recently where I ended up doing a bit of a SWOT analysis um, to help inform my decision making because it, it just got to the point where it was too hard to kind of figure it out in my head and mm-hmm. I needed to see it all listed out and all written down about what some of those you know strengths and opportunities um, were in, in each of the opportunities and that really helped to inform my decision making so yes maybe I've become a bit more of a strategic <laughs> decision maker <laughs> as I've, as I've um, become more senior. Yeah, no, that's a really good idea. Um, Do you think, too, that, you know, as a member of the allied health team, as a physiotherapist, you know, sort of there's not a large number of physiotherapists around the place. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage, do you think, when you're looking at career opportunities and, and different opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think it can go both ways. I think, um, you know, it is a case of standing on the shoulders of giants and the people that have come before us. I mean, the reason why I think physiotherapy at the Austin has such a great profile is because of um, really the pedigree and the heritage of, you know, Sue Burney, Linda Dennehy, Kathy Knorr, all these people who really established the role of physiotherapy there. So I think we've got a lot of advantages to, to where we are now. Um, obviously, we are a new, generally quite new professions within mm-hmm. allied health. Um, we don't, you know, we're still establishing evidence to support our practices and, and things that we do in the ICU so sometimes I think um, we may have to make more of a more of a case for um, our our interventions or sort of you know being a part of the team I think as well um, you know I think some sometimes it it can be hard to be part of the ICU team when you're just not there 24 7 Um, do you know I I think that that ultimately really can impact um, the role so look I think there's lots of really um strengths and I guess weaknesses um, to to um, being a physio in, in the ICU but I think it's that case of yeah wherever you can being present um, trying to do good work involving others contributing mm-hmm. and I think that um, can go a long way um, to really establishing establishing yourself but also I think at the end of just building relationships with people I think that's probably one of the most important things um, I think any of us can do in our in our professional um, life so um sorry I may have gone a little off track with that answer but um but yeah I think I think oh so you know so certainly you know would I like to come back to New Zealand and live in New Zealand yes um do I think it would be hard to find work maybe um for where I am at now or yes (laughs) I don't know maybe maybe that's just an assumption that I have um so yes so I think it is it is think trying to find yeah what what the opportunities are um and or create you know or create them I guess is is the other is the other thing so um yeah it, it can be tricky but um I think there's also yeah, good opportunities. Uh, p- part of the thing for where I am at now in my career is that I almost don't like to be thought of as like just a physiotherapist. Mm-hmm. I like to think that the research that I'm doing is beyond my discipline or beyond mm-hmm. a discipline. Um, I think it's 
hard sometimes for people to conceptualize that because we it's something about that professional identity that we always group people according to professional identity but certainly some of the work that I'm doing now I think kind of traverses across um sort of professional groups but it's making sure again the right people in the room the right people are engaged in that process um, and kind of more evaluating research in, in a different way because um, of the skill sets that I bring. So the, you know, the methodological expertise that I can bring to that team and then insert whatever content or topic area in. That That's certainly where I want to kind of keep going and keep growing mm. in, in terms of um, my career ongoing, I guess. It's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, nurses, and I've had the same, you know, experience that you sort of get labelled as a nursing researcher or a physiotherapy researcher, Um I don't think that happens to medical researchers to the same extent. Um, but looking at it, as you're explaining, in terms of the patient-centered research and um, clinical research in its more broader sense, it possibly describes more what we do um, and doesn't pigeonhole people into types of research necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. I was having that conversation with one of my um, mentors and because I think you know at the moment some of my IC recovery work is looking at a specific in intervention being peer support and yes traditionally you mightn't think of that you know and I still probably wouldn't say oh that's a physiotherapy intervention but it's an IC recovery intervention and I've built a lot of expertise and um, sort of the, in the IC recovery space and yes I've done the physical rehab um, with these patients but then it's recognizing these patients as a whole person and thinking about the World Health Organization international classification of functioning I think I'm saying that right um, and think about participation and societal participation and what are the things that stop people from fully being able to participate and so for some people yes that might be heavily biased towards their physical condition but for others it might be um, around their these like social limitations and so really for me peer support kind of brings a lot of that stuff all, all together um, but yeah so I was speaking with this mentor about the fact that yeah people might kind of wonder why as a physiotherapist would I be interested or be doing work in peer support but then um, she made the comment as well that um, you know do you think particularly in 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 um, American in the IC field there doct a, a lot of doctors do research in physical rehab do a lot of stuff and what might traditionally been seen as physiotherapy type of research but no one really questions that no one says why is a doctor doing research on physical function, which traditionally might be kind of a field owned by physiotherapists or physical therapists. So you're you're right. It is it is something where yeah, people I think sometimes have a hard time thinking about um, people outside of their professional group. But I think over time we probably need to be more thinking about what what do people bring to a research team or what skills do people have and then getting the right people um, with those requisite skills involved. So I don't claim to be an absolute expert in um, peer support and I certainly make sure I have the right people. So I have a psychologist, um, I have a social worker who have expertise in group facilitation. So they're very much a part of our peer support program. Um, but, um, but it doesn't mean that I can't be leading the work or analysing the data or designing the study because those are skills that I've built up over time. Mm. And developing those teams is so important, isn't it? But it also adds so much more um, fun to the research. 
and so much more learning for you as the lead investigator. Yeah, absolutely. It de definitely broadens your horizons. Yeah. So what did you investigate in your PhD? So I, um, at the time when I started, was doing the intervention for the um, rehab trial. So I think the largest rehab trial in ICU um, in Australia to date. Um, so that um, had a cohort of, of about 150 odd people. And then I used that same cohort for my PhD to follow up that trial cohort at five years um, after ICU discharge. So that produced some of the first um, Australian five-year data. Um, and so we found in that study that if patients survive to that time point they tended to be okay like they weren't in in so in terms of their physical function um their psychological function their quality of life they weren't too far off um australian population normals so um that that was interesting but we did have a higher mortality rate than um, some of brian cuthbertson's work and margaret herridge's work some of the other five-year studies at the contemporary five-year studies at the time um so so yeah so long-term um, patient outcomes. I also did a smaller study looking at caregiver um, outcomes um, and sort of trajectories of their outcomes from ICU through to kind of that immediate post-hospital discharge period with a short-term follow-up period. I also looked at prediction of outcomes. So I got um, ICU doctors, nurses, and physiotherapists to predict kind of things like discharge destination and physical function and quality of life. And that was a sort of a small, small study. Um, everyone where I was develop, obviously developing my research skills when I look back at it now. Um, <laughs> and I also did a systematic review looking at caregiver outcomes um, as well. So um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a mix, but it was mostly sort of yeah, patient and family outcomes research. Mm. Um, and that's really sort of what laid that foundation for me to sort of really be interested in the IC recovery space and then post PhD moving into um, look, starting to look at interventions that might improve those those outcomes. Mm. So picking up on a couple of things um, from your thesis then. So I guess the first thing, which is fascinating, is how good are we at predicting um, where people will go following discharge? So um, so that was a, a very small single site study. But thinking back, um, the doctors actually were pretty, uh, they sort of came out as the clinic, clinician group who actually um, did a pretty reasonable job um, at predicting things like discharge destination and, and physical um, function. So, um, so not, not bad in that study. Um, more recently, um, I've worked with an international group through um, SCCM where we did a systematic review of prediction models of post-ICU impairments. Um, we did a heck of a lot of screening um, and we only found three, three full texts that we could include that were actually properly developed prediction models. So um, that's a really, I think, a field that's quite wide open for um, development to really develop those proper prediction studies um, to, to really look at what happens to, to people. So um, I think that's still a bit of a bit of an emerging emerging field um, as well. And why might the prediction models be important at the bedside? Yeah, that's, I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a really important and fundamental question, I think, to the delivery of, of critical care services. So um, I think often in ICU, we, um, 
you know, a, a lot of clinicians practice in that environment and they don't really always have that long-term view of what happens to patients um, and families afterwards. Um, I think um, we've got a lot of disjointing and dis sort of fragmentation of um, healthcare where patients might come to the ICU, you know, and then return home, but there's no real kind of linkage between ICU and primary care or primary care and mm. ICU where, you know, patients may have a deterioration in their physical function or their quality of life. Um, but none of that is, is always systematically or objectively measured and recorded or visible in an EMR, say, mm. um, where, you know, on presentation to the ICU, um, the intensivist can say, hey, this person's got deteriorating health. Um, is ICU the best place for them? So I guess it comes back to those decisions around um, admission um, and then what intensive care therapies would we is best in the best interest of the patient and the mm. caregivers to provide them. So I think prediction of outcome is about um, kind of thinking about the best use of intensive care services um, for the most, some of the most vulnerable people, um, and then thinking about the levels of how intensive the therapies are that you're going to provide them, mm. because of how it's going to impact on that patient's life mm. and their caregiver's life, and how much I think ultimately um, it's going to impact on their participation in society. And is, is there value in that? Is that something that they want? Is that something that as clinicians we're willing to, to, to do to people? Um, so mm -hmm. I, think it, I think prediction of outcomes really fundamental to the delivery of ICU, particularly now that we're starting to learn more and more about the patient family experience after ICU um, and, and starting to understand from their perspective um, I think, you know, that shift from mortality being a key indicator of ICU success mm. to now thinking about um, the impact on, on patients and families. Mm. And I guess how that can inform our goals of care, either perhaps, you know, in the ideal world prior to ICU admission in some instances, but certainly during ICU admission exactly. in a lot of cases. Yeah. yeah. How could we sort of... I guess, improve the patient pathway if it's a, you know, a planned event to capture some of those things? Yeah, one, one idea that I've spoken before about with um, Sue Burney was just thinking about um, and in the primary care setting, having a very simple measure that, you know, particularly um, older patients, maybe anyone over the age of 60 or over the age of 65, to have some objective measure of physical function or quality of life, something quick, something easy that can be documented in their medical record. Um, and then on a, you know, in the event that they did come to ICU, that that objective information was able to inform those um, family meetings, able to inform that clinical mm. decision-making rather than having to rely on proxy report when patients can't speak for themselves. So to be able to have some sort of systematic way of recording objective information that could help inform decision-making is, is, one, is one idea. And then I think, you know, better linkage between um, things like electronic medical records, I think in this day and age, to be able to have some of that information information readily um, visible mm. to the admitting um, intensivists. I think um, there's sort of, you know, great potential there to kind of join up systems. Um, 
yeah, it's not, I think it's one of those tricky problems. I don't think there's yeah. sort of no, uh, I don't think there's a straightforward or, or, or kind of easy, easy answer. Um, I think as well, one of the, one of the um, interesting findings from our paper published in intensive care medicine last year around kind of the value of post-ICU programs from the clinician's perspective is that they can provide that opportunity for people to come and work in those programs and really learn what happens to patients and families mm. uh, after the ICU that then informs their care, informs how they practice back in the ICU setting. Um, so it's that kind of that closing of the loop and sort of understanding um, mm. that really that that whole pathway. So I think it's your yeah, education as well um, for for clinicians and you're really getting that firsthand experience of, um, mm. of what really what becomes of people. That's so important, isn't it? And you described it before. It's always been a concern of mine, I guess, because um, I think when we, we become very siloized. <laughs> in ICU our goal is getting the patient beyond the ICU doors but that is or yeah not even beyond but outside of um, the ICU doors and I think that is our primary focus it's getting them out getting them discharged we don't necessarily know or even imagine what happens afterwards and I think um, because of my research role it's very different you see you know, you call patients, you see them in the wards, or you call them at three months or six months, whatever, and you hear their stories. Whereas if you're working in the bedside in the ICU, you don't necessarily hear that unless somebody does come back to visit. Exactly right. I think one of the other ideas that I've had, yeah, I have ideas, but sometimes I'm not very good at operationalizing them. And but one of the other ideas that I've had is thinking about the... Um, m and meetings in ICU and thinking about, well, you know, could you incorporate an ICU survivorship component mm -hmm. to those meetings and um, to really understand the impact of your care? So, yeah, in terms of, in terms of, it's kind of thinking about morbidity, but in a mm -hmm. longer term. In a different way in a slightly different way and then as well what what's the benefit of that on staff in terms of things like burnout so if you hear if you can you know counter some of all the tragedy and some of the sad stories that we've all experienced and seen in ICU with sometimes some of the positive outcomes from our care what what's the impact of of that on on morale and on um and on, on important things like um burnout for clinicians if you can include if you can close that loop back and, and hear some of those positive outcomes from from our care I think yeah. that's got potential too would be an interesting thing I'd be curious to see see what happens it'd be really interesting to look at wouldn't it because you know like you say we're very focused on the sad stories the long-term patients who spend months with us the the young ones the ones who die the you know the tragedy of it all whereas we actually forget that a vast majority of our patients do really, really well. Um, exactly. And that even in amongst the tragic ones, there are some incredible stories and highlighting those so that people remember those, focus on them uh, is the challenge, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like that same sort of mechanism when patients come back into the ICU and they bring the box of chocolates and the thank you card. It's that, and you know, for staff to be able to see those patients walk back in when they previously might've been immobile and, um, you know, yeah. 
um, really thin and, you know, having seeing them put a bit more weight on and sleep well mm. and, you know, some of those things I think can be really powerful um, mm. to ma- make it, you know, that hard slog, I think, worth it. Yeah. So a lot of your work has been around, um, you know, patient survivorship and looking at post-intensive care syndrome. Tell us about that from a patient's perspective. What do we know? What do they tell us? Yeah, so I think, um, again, we're probably still gathering um, good epidemiological data in the Southern Hemisphere around things like post-intensive care syndrome. I think a a lot of the data to date has come from, um, from the US and from the Northern Hemisphere. And I think their health systems are different. I think COVID has really shown some of the differences um, in practicing in in the different regions of the world and Mm. the different health systems. And so I think um, what what we know is really still emerging um, in this field. We have some local epidemiological data, but I think what we need is really the epidemiological data that follows people up from the very sort of short term, from six months through to 12 months, and then on the year, every year, maybe out, out, maybe out to 10 years. And we sort of, we don't really have that, have that data. So a lot of the time when we talk about PICS and post-intensive care syndrome um, and sort of adverse outcomes, we draw heavily on that narrative. We draw heavily on data from the Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And I think based on some of my experiences and certainly more recently of del- trying to deliver an intervention in these patients, mm-hmm. I do circle back to kind of thinking how bad is post-intensive care syndrome here in the Southern Hemisphere? Uh, Because it's hard to find the niche group of patients to deliver your intervention to. So in some of my more recent experiences in delivering a peer support program to improve patient and family outcomes, we had a bit of a hard time trying to find that that sort of group of patients in which we thought it might make difference to them. So patients ended, either ended, excuse me, either were too unwell mm-hmm. and were possibly dying uh, and maybe had new diagnoses of cancer or, uh, you know, multiple multi-morbidity, multiple medical appointments, which made attendance and participation hard. Um, So they kind of seemed to be, they were too too unwell um, or at the other end of the spectrum, they were really quite well (laughs) and they were back at work and they're back playing golf golf, and they really kind of like, oh, why, you know, didn't really understand why we're offering such a program to Mm. them. But to kind of find that middle group of, you know, medium to long stay ICU patients, you know, your, your septic patients, some of your long stay ICU patients, really to find that group, um, that they're certainly harder to, I think, harder to come by now. So, um, so that was certainly some of um, the, just anecdotal, some of my anecdotal mm-hmm. observations of running a pilot RCT um, in that regard. So, um. So what do they tell us here? I think um, they have short-term problems, but then going into the um, longer-term setting, um, out to five years, as I mentioned earlier, we really found that a lot of them didn't weren't reporting any um, symptoms of anxiety or depression or PTSD at that time point. Um, and I suspect that, and, and again, their six-minute walk tests were, I think, about 70 
percent predicted of normal and their quality of life scores were fairly comparable or they're within a standard deviation of population normals in Australia so um, we really kind of were surprised at just how well people were at that five-year mm. mark and I suspect that um, perhaps the ones that don't do so well after ICU locally here in the Southern Hemisphere are, are possibly the ones that may die um, within, within the first year. So for me, it's kind of got me thinking um, that uh, perhaps we need to be doing more in the short term to understand that trajectory of recovery from ICU, transitioning home, um, and then out to kind of 12 months plus. And Seeing so some of the things that people say, some of the words people have said um, in some of the qualitative work I've done, they feel lost in the system, and they want they want someone to call. So they almost want like a care coordinator or a, a care navigator type role mm -hmm. in the short term um, when they're transitioning from hospital to home. Um, and, and they want someone who knows their case. They want someone from the ICU who, who knows about them and what happened to them in the ICU. So those are certainly some of the things people have told us. And I think, um, so for me, it's kind of thinking about what happens to these patients in that first six to 12 months, particularly for the ones who may go on to, to die, to say, what supports do you need? You know, have they had those end of life care discussions or advanced care planning? Um, you know, is there room to sort of make sure that they're on, they're on the right pathways for them? Um, and again, I suspect some of the ones who do quite well probably sort of things self-resolve self um, for them, um, perhaps. Um, or again, just making sure that they've got the information. I think a lot of the time they've also told us we want, we want information and we want it in different forms. So we want it the, you know, we give a lot of verbal information yeah. in healthcare and in, in hospital, um, but um, we need to think about different ways of communicating with patients and families and providing them with written information and then where to go for help should they need it. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely, I think, different tiers of patients and different categories, I think, of patients mm -hmm. that have quite different experiences. But, um, yeah, I think we're still really documenting that for the Southern mm. Hemisphere. So that's really interesting in terms of looking at the differences between the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. Um, we know that we're very different healthcare systems and, and care is provided in different ways at the bedside. Um, but I wonder also in terms of ethnic groups um, and how that might contribute as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Certainly at the hospital that I work at, um, Western Health, being in the western suburbs of Melbourne, we certainly see um, a real um, diverse mix of um, patients um, from very diverse socioeconomic um, backgrounds. We have a large migrant community um, that we care for. Um, we've got higher rates of um, mental illness in our local community, um, multimorbidity, um, that, that sort of, you know, that the, the, a lot of the presentations that we we see. So um, they are, a, you know, often from disadvantaged backgrounds. So um, absolutely, I think um, I think we probably need to understand more about how um, some of those different socioeconomic um, statuses 
disadvantages, how that affects um, survivorship locally here in Australia and, and also in, in New Zealand and how that might differ, differ to other um, regions of the world. Uh, we, we are just starting a study looking at um, trying to improve the transition of care between ICU and hospital um, back to primary care. Um, and so we, it's a qualitative study where we're going to be interviewing ICU consultants, um, GPs, and then patients and families. And when we're sampling patients and families, we're specifically, we're using proposal sampling and we're specifically trying to sample patients and their caregivers from different areas around Melbourne um, using the Australian Bureau of Bureau of Statistics, um, they've got a map that shows the different areas of socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage. So um, that's going to inform our the way we sample um, mm. so that we can help understand a little bit more locally about what's happening for people from those different um, areas of, of um, socioeconomic um, advantage or disadvantage. Mm. So I think learning more about that would be um, important. Um, I think as well, there's room to improve in terms of thinking about Indigenous um, health um, in Australia and um, particularly those that are admitted to the ICU and thinking about things like systemic racism, you know, and, mm -hmm. and what that means for us in the intensive care community. Um, because I think, you know, in the year of 2020 and Black Lives Matter, I th matters. I think we need to be thinking about what what is that for us here in mm. Australia and New Zealand. What does that mean for us? Um, because I don't think we can just say that's a problem um, yeah. for um, North America. I think um, it, it's a global problem, and I think again, it's that thing of us um, checking our privilege in terms of you know we're the ones um, conducting research. Are we aware of our own biases around how we design and how we do um, do research? Um, because we, we know patients from Indigenous backgrounds have worse health outcomes. So, so what are we doing in the intensive care community to try and improve, improve outcomes for that, for that population also? Mm, I think that's one of the so things kind of that, that 2020 yeah. taught us is to question everything. <laughs> and, and going back to a, our own biases, whether they're unconscious or conscious, um, but also looking at diversity and inequity in all its forms and all the areas um, is so important. And like you say, it's sort of, it's not that it's been ignored, but it certainly hasn't been addressed um, in research up till now necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's um, an important thing when it comes to thinking about um, diversity, um, because for me, it's not just about diversity and inclusion for one minority mm. group, it's about diversity for, for all minority groups. Um, and you can't sort of have, yeah, you can't be focused on diversity for one group, but not not for, for, for all groups. So um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that's a really important thing that we all need to be thinking about um, in our research and how we're designing it um, to really, again, thinking about that, that the, the concept of representing our community. So how well do we represent our community um, as researchers um, and making sure that people are, are really seen and, 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 and valued and that, um, you know, and, and that's a part of that research process. And um, that's something I've felt strongly about um, with some of my co-design work is thinking about 
that patient and family um, involvement and making sure mm -hmm. where possible we can get a really diverse group of consumers um, involved. I mean, I think and I see we're probably still <laughs> slowly transitioning to thinking about consumer engagement a little bit more in terms of the mm. of clinical care, um, the design of you know education, the design of research. I, I first started thinking about it when I went to an education um, or sort of it was a research symposium and patient ICU survivors and their families were coming back to tell a room full of, I don't know, 150 odd clinicians and researchers their story it's kind of that you know emotional primer before mm -hmm. we went on professional speakers and you could still they, see they were traumatized by their ICU experience mm -hmm. and this recounting of the story I kind of thought well this is really entirely for our benefit as audience members um to, to sort of hear this and I kind of thought what um what are some of the kind of protections in place or, or what what is it that we need to do given that we know about things like post-intensive care syndrome um, and clearly these patients still look traumatized when telling their story and um, do we just thank them and give them a gift voucher and you know some flowers and say thanks for coming to talk to us mm. see you later or is there some more sort of systematic way that we need to be thinking about when we approach survivors to ask them to come and share their stories so what's that setup of engagement mm. inviting them to come how does the actual session run? And then what's the close off? What, what happens then or after the event? So that's where I really started thinking about the whole concept of consumer engagement and intensive care. And then started thinking about it a little bit more from a, from a research perspective. And then um, I went on to do a study using co-design methodology with ICU survivors and their caregivers. And um, yeah, it was really cool. It was probably one of the most interesting studies I've done using that methodology. I mean, it's way, it's a lot more intense, um, involved, but I think it, it it is worth it for um for for some mm. for some things. So that's what that's what informed the design of our peer support program because I thought, oh well, I can design a peer support program. I can read the papers and I can probably figure it out. But at yeah. the end of the day, I really want that intervention to be serving the people who who it's intended for. Mm. I really needed to get them in the room and really needed to ask them the questions about you know, all the logistical stuff of, you know, when should it be, who should be there, what do you want to hear, um, how long should it run for. So it really is um, mm. a great way of kind of iteratively working through um, some of those issues. Um, and so were patients and families keen to be involved in the process as well? Or did you, you know, was it a really hard sell or was it really easy? It was a really easy sell. <laughs> so to be honest, compared to calling up people to say, could you do, um, could you answer some questions for like an observational type study? Um, and they might make a little bit disinterested it, to say, could you come back to the hospital and help, um, help us design a program that might benefit the future care of others? They were like, yes, <laughs> they were, it, was, it was really easy to get participants um, and then as well to kind of get them all in the room at the same time. And um, a lot of the ones that we had invited had been had quite long and complex stays. So mm. it was really emotional for them to be in a room and sort of seeing other people with the same experience of them. And that's really kind of the mechanism mm. that peer support draws on. That, that realisation that you're not alone, that there's other people out there who may have struggled like like you may have so um yeah it's a really great way to kind of bring bring I think patients back um to the hospital and for them as well it seemed to kind of close off uh, close that feedback loop to them because often 
um, particularly for the long stay patients, they build and their caregivers, they build a community. They build a lot of social relationships in the ICU and even with the hospital. And then they leave. And it, well, they often describe that this is, there's this real truncation and this real sort of drop off. And they really kind of go from being so well supported to feeling like that on their own. Um, mm. The caregivers often say, I'm, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I don't, I don't know what it is that I need to be doing for the patient to care for them. I'm worried. I'm, you know, I'm anxious just to sort of be let go like this. So co-design really seemed to be a way for them to come back and sort of really tell their story. And it was almost like a closing, closing of the feedback mm. loop for them. So, so that was kind of cool to observe. And then I think for clinicians participating in co-design, it gives them an opportunity to step outside of the busy clinical environment and really think about. Um, what it is that they're doing in their day-to-day -day work. So what are some of the good things? What are some of the, um, the, the things that aren't so good? And then and what are your ideas for a really improvement? So um, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great methodology. Um, I think that's got quite broad applicability to a lot of what we do um, in intensive mm. Yeah, because we don't understand it from the perspective of the patient or the family, you know, whether it's what happens at the bedside, what happens afterwards, do we? Yeah, absolutely. So what do families go through when the patient is either in ICU or after the ICU time? Yeah, so I think um, I think fam looking at family outcomes is probably something that um, obviously there's been an emergence of research um, in the space and there continues to be. And I think articulating that fam the family experience is different to the quite different to the patient experience and that families are really they warrant their own um, you know program of research in terms of what happens to them and measuring the outcomes but then also possibly their own their own interventions interventional type studies as well so I think for families um, some so often they report um, obviously anxiety, depression, PTSD, all those psychological symptoms that have been called or recognized as post-intensive care syndrome family. Um, all those mental health impacts are, are probably are pronounced during the ICU stay high stress levels, um, which I think is, is sort of natural to, to assume, but certainly the, the data shows that. And then over time, um, certainly in some of my PhD um, research that I did, it seems that with the trajectory that those outcomes really improve over time. I thought they might um, have worse outcomes when the patients are leaving um, the hospital and returning home and sort of that transition of care to them as the primary caregiver. But that didn't really show up in, in um, my small study that I, I did. Um, and then in the longer term, I think um, really when I start thinking more, less so about kind of epidemiological type studies and more about some of the qualitative um, data, really um, they go from sort of ICU and having this sort of the health shock of, of the patient's admission um, to really, um, and I think um, some of the work by Jill Cameron's really nice in terms of using the timing it right framework, which mm -hmm. um, has been used in stroke patients of thinking about that acute event through the adaptation and stabilization. Um, so really they go from being, um, I think before the patient gets admitted to ICU as spouse to then being a caregiver and then over time returning to that role of, of spouse mm -hmm. or, or family member, what, family member, whatever that relationship is with, with the patient. So they, they go through a huge, a huge train. 
you know, transition um, and, and change over time. Um, so I think that's been some of the most interesting um, kind of learning for me is really thinking about what that impact is on the family um, and then thinking about what can we do in the ICU to try and reduce some of those mental health impacts and, you know, thinking about the way that we work and thinking about the way that we practice in ICU, that it's not just a case of communicating well, but that it might be a case of actually involving them in, in bedside care if they wish to. Um, and I think probably in New Zealand, I think, um, you know, when I think about um, some of the Pacific Island families that I remember as a new grad, um, being at the bedside and being involved and they wanted to be hands-on with with yep. the patients and you know I think I think there is value in that and I think that's not something that we always offer and I think like I get it I see some busy environment um but it's also thinking about you know who who are we ultimately ultimately there for are we mm. treating the clinicians or are we treating the patients and and, the, and their caregivers and I think if we think about that then um sometimes that should be enough to shift the way the way we practice and yeah. then invite families as as a way of sort of connecting the patient to the outside world when they're there what what can you do to support them from a social perspective you know bringing fat you know bringing photos in um to the bedside so you know there's there's lots that we can offer families to do or give them a role in to engagement engage them in that patient's care that not only helps the patients in their recovery, mm. um, but it helps the families. And um, really, I think Judy Davidson's done some great work around facilitated sense making, um, and so trying to redirect all those sort of those negative mental health impacts into a meaningful and purposeful mm. role at the bedside for for families. Obviously, within reason and within the right parameters, but there is lots we can do. And particularly if we think about engaging them in rehab, they could be doing some simple exercises with the patient throughout the day they could be setting up an ipad for them and playing some music or mm. playing some sudoku or reading the newspaper to them or giving them some cognitive stimulation rather than the patient staring at the you know for mm. icu so i think you know it's it's being a bit creative it's using our imagination it's doing it safely but then as well that can help us as as clinicians um as as well i think so there's lots of benefits to supporting families um, in the ICU and, and beyond. And again, it's seeing that long-term picture, isn't it? And the impact, you know, it's going to have on the patient or the family member once they leave the ICU doors, let alone while they're there. Yeah. I was having this conversation, in fact, on um, the last podcast interview in terms of how we see the family as family rather than visitors. And, you know, that whole sort of different perspective to it. Um, you know, we're not, like you say, getting, trying to get them involved at the right level, um, doing things that they're comfortable with and that are appropriate. We're not about to ask them to run the balloon pump or change the filter bags or, you know, but there's always something that can be done. Yeah, it's, I think it's just, yeah, recognising it and paying attention to it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. so... We were talking about peer support groups um, and you've also mentioned ICU follow-up clinics. Now, same, same or different? And, and really? what do we know about the impact of both of those? 
Yeah, sure. And um, that's, that's a great question. So I think I would class both um, as being, you know, IC recovery type programs as sort of the umbrella phrase. Um, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine have really kind of spearheaded a lot of work internationally in this space with their um, Thrive Initiative, um, which housed two learning collaboratives. So one for hospitals setting up peer support groups and the other for hospitals setting up follow-up clinics. So um, I guess for both, the data isn't great. Um, I think um, obviously there's been um, RCTs done of follow-up clinics. There's not the same level of investigation or RCT done yet um, in, in peer support. Uh, we've just finished this year a pilot RCT of, of peer support at our hospital. Um, COVID kind of derailed the write-up of that, but it is on my list. Um, so I hope to get that out into the literature um, as well. So I would class both of them as being complex interventions. I think ICU follow-up clinics follow a traditional sort of biomedical model of care, um, you know, similar to any outpatient kind of visit where the doctor's really kind of head of the MDT. Um, and then you have a lot of um, different, you know, the multidisciplinary team that patients come and come and see. Um, whereas peer support works slightly different in terms of, I would say, there's probably a flatter kind of leadership hierarchy with it because it's about tapping into people's experiences and getting people to tell their stories. So we try very um, early on to try and really flatten that flatten that hierarchy between clinician and patient, um, just to say that everyone's got a story to, to tell here. Um, it requires, I think, expert facilitators, so people like psychologists and social workers who are able to lead a group in, in a discussion. Um, and certainly the model we chose to adopt in our pilot RCT at Western Health was one which had an education component to it. So there was a formal component of education where um, they might have heard from uh, a neuropsychologist talking about delirium and the impacts on cognition or a physiotherapist might have spoken about physical rehab and, and where to go in the community for help. Um, mm -hmm. Or social workers spoke about, you know, um, return to employment, um, you know, how to get help in the community if they had financial issues. So we tried to keep it very interprofessional. Um, and then there's the informal component of it where you let people have a cup of tea uh, well, when they could come in person, yeah. have a cup of tea, have a biscuit, kind of chat to each other. So, so moving these groups to online, I think, does have its challenges in terms of mm. building that social cohesion. Um, but so, so yeah, so they're quite different. Some hospitals overseas have a clinic, and then they sort of funnel their patients into the peer support group. Um, that way, um, mm -hmm. some people build their peer support groups into the clinics where um, the, the group in um, Scotland, jo McPeak, Joanne McPeak's group, they have, um, they, oh, I think pre-COVID, had people mixing and mingling uh, while they were waiting for their clinical appointments. So there's, there's sort of lots of different, different models um, to them. We did a systematic review a couple of years ago of peer support. There was, a, um, again, not many studies, but there was a signal that um, it appears as an intervention to reduce um, sort of the um, negative psychological um, aspects post-ICU and improves the positive psychological mm -hmm. aspects of things like um, increased social support, um, self-efficacy. Self um, and, and peer support's been well used in other um, patient populations with chronic um, conditions, traumatic brain injury, cancer, heart failure, diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's sort of, it's 
relatively new, I guess, in in, um, in the ICU field. So we're sort of really trying to build the, or my, my interest is around trying to build some of the science um, to help really investigate it as a, as a is, is this a viable ICU recovery um, mechanism? Mm-hmm. So as with any, you know, whether it's a clinical peer support groups, um, you know, finding the right patients to mm-hmm. come is, is a challenge. Is that sort of one of the barriers we wrote about in our Crip Care Med paper from a couple of years ago? So um, some of the enablers include things like having motivated clinicians, um, having an interprofessional team to run these programs, standardizing your operating procedures, um, and then some of the barriers with things like costs finding space um, mm. pre-COVID and also um, finding out who's who's best to come, who, who should we target with these programs. So with our one, we chose to keep it as a, because it was a pilot RCT, we really chose all comers. We um, we just sort of wanted, we wanted to see who would come and, and, and what would happen. And I think anecdotally, those who did come to the intervention they um a lot of them were male um single like they didn't have other sort of people around in this in their social and in, in their social and um, kind of networks and but they also were kind of quite motivated to to care for their health and i think it was that thing of like oh you're offering me something you're offering me a program i'm mm-hmm. going to go along and see and you know um so might they have been okay without the intervention probably <laughs> do you know <laughs> who knows so um so yeah so we just, we're still kind of playing around with that as an intervention trying to really um really explore it in in this group so we'll see mm-hmm. that where that leads um and obviously in COVID, moving it to more of a um, virtual platform. Mm. So are there, um, you know, some, I guess, reputable, for want of a better word, um, online resources for peer support for ICU survivors and their families? You yeah. Know, I imagine there's lots of Facebook groups or whatever out there. But Yeah, yeah that, and, and that's the thing, I think. It's kind of thinking about... Yeah, patients could very well, and they could exist. I haven't specifically looked. Um, so I think some of the stuff um, from ICU Steps in the UK, I think that's a, ch- a charity. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's run by former ICU patients and, and caregivers. I believe that I've got some published um, material. Uh, we've taken a lot of our content and and you know in the process of publishing that I just need to figure out how or you know where, where we put that um, and we're just getting it professionally designed as well so um and I think the group from Nepean they've um had some patient handouts I think just talking locally um in a you know southern hemisphere um they've got some from their follow-up clinic and then also Katrina Cook um, and Rahesh Ramana from um, Queensland Group, they ran a follow-up clinic. I think they've produced some um, materials as well. Um, are they published and readily accessible? I, no, I don't think so at this point in time. I may be wrong in saying that, um, but um, Matthew Ansey is leading a group in WA to develop an ICU recovery uh, website. So some of those materials may get deposited or may get mm. fed into that website. So that um, that that's a work in a really a work in progress. So we're hoping mm. to build material and hoping to build um, particularly an ICU recovery website that um, that's specifically designed for the ANZ community.
community. So that's really mm. exciting. Um, but yeah, if you Google IC Recovery website, I think there's some other great ones um, from the UK. Um, there's there's other stuff from um, from America as well, from um, North America. So mm. there, there are, you just sort of have to do a bit of searching for it. Yeah, yeah. Good thing for night shift or exactly. like that. <laughs> exactly. So it would be remiss of us if we didn't talk about the elephant in the room that we've mentioned a couple of times, that, that nasty called COVID. What has that meant for you this year? Well, it's been a big year. I think um, I think as well off the trauma that was the Australian bushfires in January, um, to then have that quickly followed by COVID-19. And I think it's really been a year of trauma for so many people. Um, For me personally, I'm glad that I've had a job um, throughout the pandemic and that I've been able to contribute, I think, in some way, shape or form to my colleagues, my hospital, the ICU community more broadly and and to to patients and families in in some small way. Um, So really, I think thinking back to... Um, the start of the year and really March when COVID was arriving on our shores, there was a lot of um, planning that went underway. I was fortunate enough to um, be on a um, Department of Health um, and sort of statewide committee looking at ICU workforce planning. So myself and Sue Burney represented um, Allied Health and kind of thinking about how we could increase that um, sort of critical care workforce and then what, how could we leverage the skills that allied health have to really mm-hmm. supplement and build that team. So a lot of focus was done in that early stage, uh, uh, huge amounts of planning and then a gradual sort of scale back and then an implementation of it sort of late, later in the year. Um, locally as well, I, you know, I called one of our ICU consultants early on and I said, what do you need from us Is it from a therapy service? How can we help you guys? Where, where are our skills most valuable to you? Um, and, and she said, if you could think about proning and, and developing proning teams. Um, so we did a bit of work um, in that space and um, sort of ran initially using this simulation lab to then gradually doing it more online. Um, and so we upskilled a lot of people in our department and in, in, in allied health to be uh, proficient in that manoeuvre. Um, I think we did training of some nurses and, and, and doctors as well um, and then developed a um, clinical procedure around it. So that was sort of a lot of the, our initial focus was kind of thinking about the mortality impact um, and how we could help in that regard. So really a lot of our focus was on proning and then also thinking about the morbidity aspect. So thinking about things like post-intensive care syndrome um, and sort of, you know, what, what, what could we do to really try and improve recovery? So, um, and that's, that's kind of been um, something that we've, again, it's been a bandwidth issue because we've just really been focused on um providing that clinical care mm. to them um, and, and, and then sort of, see, you know, seeing what we can do to kind of improve that, that post-ICU recovery space for, for COVID patients um, locally. So, um, yeah, it's been a lot of planning and then it's been a lot of doing and then now I guess a little bit of regrouping and reflecting. Um, so, yeah, and then there's obviously been a lot of emergence of um research so we're a site for the study lead out of the ANZAC I see the COVID 
recovery um, study. I'm on the management committee for that that Carol Hodgson's leading. Um, so that'll be great to get some data around mm. the longer term outcomes. Um, we're still running the team trial. So I guess that's some sort of you know ICU based intervention. And then we're wanting to pivot our ICU recovery program, our peer support group to a virtual mode so that we could offer that to, um, to COVID-19 patients. But certainly at Western Health, we had a large proportion of the um, state's admis uh, admissions mm. and sort of by default kind of in Australia, we've got built a lot of local experience, I think, in managing um, these patients. But I think for me in reflecting, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of teamwork, I think as well, um, certainly from a physio perspective, um, because we were there a bit more and we did some extended shifts so we could offer proning um, out of, you know, or help support the team with proning out of hours. Um, we were part of ICU leadership um, meetings. So I think we definitely, from a physio perspective, felt a lot more kind of pulled into the ICU team and really mm. part of the team. Um, the other sort of, um, I think, benefits that I've seen um, is, you know, think, we've probably started thinking more as an allied health group. And so Emma Ridley and Amy um, Sanderson and I have been, and then we've involved a social worker from a hospital, Sarah Booth. We've been starting to write a few papers now about sort of the role of allied health and rehabilitation and thinking about surge responses from allied mm. health during pandemics. So that's something um, that that I think it's kind of a, sort of a mini collaboration, ad hoc kind of collaboration that's yeah. formed. But it's been a good way for us to think a bit more interprofessionally across allied health and in the ICU setting. So that's been great to see. I think some of the trade-offs have also meant that maybe we've been pushed back in some regards into our site, like silos of care when we think about you know, delivering ward-based care. So for physiotherapists, we'd often move between wards, um, whereas now because of restrictions, we've adopted um, kind of a more ward-based type model where you just are on the ward seeing patients, whereas, you know, we try to have a model where it's, you know, the the best, you know, the right therapist seeing the right patient at the right time. So, for example, if you're on a general medical ward and there's a patient there with a stroke, usually we would engage like a stroke specialist physio mm. to come to that ward to help consult or provide that sort of best care to that patient group. So in some regards, I think because of restrictions and some of those geographical limitations, I feel like care in some regards might step back in time a little bit same when we think about family at the bedside in ICU mm. that's probably step back in time um, I think as well collaboration across countries maybe it's pushed us back into our countries or in, back into our regions of of the world um, because of, because of the nature of it yeah. so yeah so this I think there's been some some good things but also some some trade-offs you know some some downsides to it as well um and i guess now we're entering a period of um, recovery and um sort of seeing, seeing what that that means for people um so yeah so i think there's still still plenty of work to do I, the other thing i was interested in doing is thinking about um running a study or particularly with allied health um like a debrief type study um where um, we get people to reflect on what it was like to um, work in the COVID-19 pandemic and really to be able to harness the disruption that COVID-19 caused mm. because all of a sudden all those barriers that we've put up to doing things like telehealth 
all of a sudden those barriers just fell away because they had to out of necessity. So, so what 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 has kind of been unearthed, or what what are the some of the things that we've really learned this year that 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 disruption has caused, and being able to take the really positive things forward into the future, and then mm. maybe let go of some of the some of the more negative aspects. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's lots lots to be learned, and that we'll continue to learn from this pandemic really important though isn't it like you say to identify either what has or what hasn't worked um but to take it forward to learn from it to implement it if it's a good thing um not to worry about it too much if it wasn't and let it go um but to constantly be learning and moving on and and redeveloping and regrouping yeah absolutely so i guess just sort of you know looking at the time conscious of your time too that um we should think about wrapping up but what have you learned, I guess, in terms of looking after yourself um, in the last few months um, with this crazy, crazy world? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think um, as someone who is a senior ICU physiotherapist and I was supervising a clinical team of ICU um, physiotherapists, I was doing a lot of giving and kind of a lot of um, sort of putting out to keep everyone else's chins up and help everyone kind of keep their morale up and keep together as a team. And we had really good organization around, you know, communication and PPE and we, you know, made sure we're well organized and really pulled together as a team. So I felt that, um, but then as well, trying to remember that I couldn't just give and that I had to do stuff to look after myself or to replenish mm-hmm myself and I think as well me you know I'm not gonna lie but the last kind of month weeks of that stage for lockdown really got to me I you know the first lockdown I was fine and I managed I just you know soldiered on and I had things to do whereas towards the end I was starting to feel like what's the point of getting up um you know on the weekend um and and life just felt like it was about work and it was just a grind and there was no escaping it and then all the usual things that I would do to you know rejuvenate myself I kind of I couldn't do so um exercise was a really um important strategy that I used um to help my mental health and psychology and support and that was another strategy that I used meditation, I find help so I can sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were some of the things um, that that helped a little. I think it's just it's been it's been a tough time and there's been no um, easy fix. But um, I think as well doing stuff for others and, and trying to help others as well is a way that I used to sort of feel that that helps me um, to checking in on other people um, as well. So yeah. It's, it's not been an easy time. Do I feel like I was successful in all those things? Probably not. Um, I probably feel better now that I know restrictions are easing. Um, can't, you know, postponing our wedding multiple times and trying to plan that, you know, having a plan from A through to Z and then kind yeah. of just not really again. <laughs> yep, and back again and then sort of just not really feeling like the usual excitement that one would expect in the lead up to, to a wedding. Um, but, you know, kind of thinking that's, locked in now for January next year so I'm excited for that I'm excited for some summer holidays um got a couple of nights booked down the Great Ocean Road in a few weeks time so I'm looking forward to just jumping in the ocean and like letting go of 2020 nice 
yeah yeah I think it's about time for that isn't it (laughs) and again it's that cycle of uh, regrouping and moving on again and you know looking forward to next year and whatever that might bring exactly it's been the year of um make resilience and and being um adaptable Mm. and I guess you know it's no different to what our patients are doing each time too so yeah absolutely absolutely I think it's all probably given us all slightly different insights to um different aspects of life and different walks of life um this yeah 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 oh well fingers crossed onwards and upwards and um Very exciting times, particularly with the wedding coming up. So we'll keep our fingers and toes crossed that there's no more lockdowns um, and that everything goes ahead and that you have the most wonderful day and um, all the best for whatever next year brings. So thank you very much. Thanks, Rachel. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you enjoyed that. Wasn't that a great chat with Kimberly? Interesting to hear her perspectives on the role of families making sure we represent our communities in our research and the importance of diversity, seeing the long-term view of what happens to our patients and their whānau, families, and engaging with our survivors through co-design, and also giving relatives a role in the patient's care, no matter how small. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy and who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next year, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.